Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, where I share simple and scientific strategies to help you take back control of your mental health and life. In this episode, I interview Patrick Bet David, successful startup entrepreneur, CEO of PHP Agency Inc., emerging author and creator of Valuetainment on YouTube, on how to identify and overcome self-sabotaging behavior, how to use criticism to your advantage, the mindsets and attitudes of the most successful and creative people, and more. But before we begin, I have some exciting news to share. You can now pre-order my new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. This book really dives into how to use my five simple and scientific steps to reduce anxiety, depression, and toxic thinking habits by up to 81%. In this book, I include my most recent clinical trials, how to use the five steps to detox trauma and detox common toxic thinking habits like overthinking and people pleasing. I also dispel some common myths like the idea that it takes 21 days to build a habit. This is my most simple, practical and applicable book yet. The book will be out March 2021, but if you pre-order now, you will get some amazing bonus content like access to an exclusive book club with me, a downloadable workbook, bonus chapters, and more. Just go to cleaningupyourmentalmess.com to pre-order. The link will also be in the show notes. One more note, if you like this podcast and want to know how you can help continue to make episodes possible, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribing. And keep sharing with friends and family and on social media. And now, on to today's episode. Patrick Bet David, what an honor to have you on my podcast. I think you're amazing. I have been interviewed by you and it was one of my most exciting and challenging interviews that I've ever been interviewed. You were the, one of the most challenging interviews I've ever had and it was fantastic. I loved it. You think deeply, you challenge people's minds and you seem to have done that in everything that you do. You've translated this ability to really get people thinking about who they are, what they believe and translate that into action. It's an incredible gift and you really are an entrepreneur par excellence. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to you today. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's going to be amazing. So you have gone from being a 10-year-old refugee, Iranian refugee, part Armenian, with divorced parents, being told that you couldn't do that much, got sort of shoved all over the place to being one of the most successful in the industry, in the financial industry, started your company PHP before the age of 30, run Valuetainment, which is a phenomenal YouTube channel with millions of subscribers, had your first successful 30 million, what is it called? I would always get that, the life of an entrepreneur, 90 seconds with 30 million views. I mean, just fantastic. You are thought provoking in your perspectives on entrepreneurship. So Tell us how you got there. How did you go from X to Y? And what can we learn from that? Born and raised in Iran, lived there 10 years, escaped six weeks after Khomeini died, went to Germany, lived at a refugee camp for a year and a half. That was the first time I learned how to make money. I had a girl at my camp. Her name was Katarina Stapp. We're friends still today on Facebook. We found each other 19 years later. Oh, wow. And her brother liked video games and I like girls. So I told him, I said, listen, <laughs> if, I, if I can, if I can, and he wanted Super Mario Brothers too. I said, if I can get this game, you play the game, I play with your sister. I was 10 years old, 11 years old, and he was four years older than me. <laughs> And he said, deal. So I went to Katarina and we went to the a local pool and I went to the owner and there was always, you know, Germans love to drink beer. Hell yeah. They love yeah. their beer. And it was beer bottles everywhere. I went to the owner. I said, listen, how do you want to clean this stuff up? 
He said, it's pretty bad. I said, what will you give me if I bring every one of them to you for 30 days straight? He says, I'll give you five fennec per. I said, great. I needed 5,000 beer bottles because the Super Mario was 249 marks at the Kaufhof, which is like their Sears. Yeah. We got to work 30 days later. I got the money. I went and bought my Super Mario Brothers and brought it to the refugee camp. Everybody started playing and Katarina and I went to the park. So we had our own time. That was the inspiration of knowing the fact that when you don't have money, you can find creative ways to make the money no matter how old you are. And then we came to the States. I went to Glendale High School. I was a one point GPA kid, joined the army right afterwards. I was there for a few years. I got out of the army. I wanted to be a bodybuilder. That was my dream. I wanted to be Mr. Olympia, you know, marry a Kennedy, going to Hollywood, eventually be a governor <laughs> type of a thing. No small aspirations. No small yeah. aspirations. <laughs> yeah. So I met this girl named Jean Bier who worked at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter at the time. And I would, you know, I would talk to her. I would say, how do you make your money? I'm a broker. I help out the Laker players. I said, how can I start working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter? And she said, you need a four-year degree. I said, I'm not getting a degree. She said, they're not going to hire you. That's the prerequisite. I said, I'm not going to do that. So I put a resume on and I send it over to a hundred different shops, Morgan Merrill, Schwab, Goldman, Smith Barney, all these guys. And my resume had Hagen dazs Bob's Big Boy, Burger King, military, but nothing on it, right? <laughs> I don't even have a four-year or a two-year, but my cover letter, I had a joke. And on the bottom of the joke, I said, if you're laughing, this is exactly how my clients are going to feel when they do business with me. They're going to love me. I said, if you want somebody like this part of your team, give me a call. I faxed it to 100 places. I got 30 callbacks, 15 offers, three job offers. And I started off with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter a day before 9-11. And then was there for about a year. Then I went to Transamerican in October of 2009. I started PHP agency with 66 agents. Today, we have over 15,000 agents in 49 states. And we went from selling 20, 30, 40, 50 policies a month to 11,000 policies just last month during the pandemic. And then accidentally started a YouTube channel that grew to what it is today. So that's my story. Accidentally started a YouTube channel that is like enormous and and having massive impact and has a unique angle, which we'll dive into as well. I mean, I I watched one of your things on Valuetainment where you talk about helping people to sell. And one of the things was to put one shoe in a box. I thought that was hilarious. Please talk about that. Just related to what you were talking about, the humor and just like the confidence you had to send out those letters and you were competing against degreed people, but you got three job offers. I think the biggest thing is just being creative. You know, like if you think about when you're back as a kid and you want your parents to do something, I got three kids. They're so creative on how they get stuff they want from me, right? And I watch them. I'm like, you know what? The way you did that, it was so creative. I have to make you feel that it works. So I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because I want you to believe in the future that you can get creative and get what you want. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I I did a lot of random things. You know, I would figure out ways to get close to you. I would send you, I would go to a local shop and I would buy a hundred shoes, all the cheap shoes, 10 bucks, five bucks, 20 bucks. Yeah. And I would send it to CEOs, except in the box, it was only one shoe. And it would say, you know, hey, dear Mr. John, you know, I'd like to do business with you. So now that I have one foot in the door, help me get the next one in, right? And <laughs> people would call me laughing. This is the most creative way. What's funny about the story is when I did that video six years ago, three years later, somebody in the UK sent a shoe to the prime minister and got a meeting with them and they wrote oh about it. Oh my gosh. And they said, this was the more, most creative way. And the guy said, I found this idea out of Valuetainment, this channel in US. So it's a very effective method and it works, but the whole idea is to be very creative. I love that. I love that. And you were very creative trying to get your, there was a job, you had an opportunity to travel overseas and you convinced that lady with all the Starbucks and the roses. That was also a funny story. <laughs> yeah, Tell that, that story. Was, that, was, that was one of my agent, one of my, you know, my assistant, his name was Chan at the time. This is 2004, 2005. He forgot to renew my license. And I said, is my license renewed? Yes, because, you know, in insurance, you need to renew your license every two years and series six. You got to always pay and do your continue. No, we've renewed it. I said, you sure? We've renewed it. And all of a sudden, I got a letter from California Department of Insurance that tells me your license is not renewed. I said, what do you mean it's not renewed? I go up to him. He says, I totally forgot to pay for it. I said, I'm missing up on $30,000, dollars $50,000 of commission. I'm supposed to go to Greece. I'm not going to qualify for this trip. So I called the Department of Insurance. And they said, no, you, we can't help you. It's going to take four weeks because California is always slow. I said, I can't do that. I said, who's the boss? They said, Gail. I said, I want to talk to Gail. I talked to Gail. I said, Gail, I need you to renew the license tonight. I need your help. She says, I can't do it. 
we need, we need four weeks. I said, Gil, I'm going to come tomorrow. She said, don't do it, Patrick. I said, Gil, I'm going to get on a plane. If you don't renew it on the phone right now, I'm going to be outside. I'll be singing. I'll get you dozens of roses. I'm going to get you coffee, cookies until you finally says, don't do it because it's not going to work. The door is closed. I tell the same assistant that didn't renew my license, book my flight. I went to Sacramento that night on a red eye. Went to the front desk clerk at the hotel I stayed in. I said, in the morning, I want you to get me Starbucks, all this stuff. So she got me boxes of coffee and they put them in these boxes and got me dozens of roses. I went outside. There's no entrance, by the way, to the Department of Insurance, a wall, one of those doors that you can't come in and out. Yeah. But I knew where the employees were going in. I stood outside and every time the employees were coming in, I said, make sure you give this to Gail. Would you like some coffee? I'm Patrick Bedevy. Tell this to Gail. Here's some flowers. Please give this to Gail. Gail finally comes out and she says... <laughs> What is the matter with you? I said, I told you I'm coming. She said, you're crazy. This has never happened. I said, well, I need that license to be renewed or, or else next I got, you know, people coming with different gifts. She says, forget about it. <laughs> Give me a few minutes. Went inside, renew my license. I came out and then I said, Gail, you're the best. She says, this has never happened. Please don't advertise this ever. And I did a video, <laughs> got a bunch of views. So that's what I do with the Department of Insurance. So what we're seeing over here in you, if I had to analyze just these three, that's why I wanted to just talk about these three stories, is that you've got tremendous tenacity. And you talk about tenacity as being such an important thing that if you've got tenacity and you enough, if you believe in an idea that you have you, and you have the tenacity to pursue it and you add in a bit of humility and humor, you've got a very good mix to be able to move into doing and achieving. And so talk a little bit about that tenacity, because that's something that we don't always realize. And I love the fact that you talk about tenacity mixed with humor and humility. Yeah. You know, everybody has a, a certain set of gifts. You know, you got you to gotta use whatever you have and not everyone's the same. My oldest son is very quiet. You know, he's very observant. He's watching everything, but the guy can read like you. I mean, I bought him 20 books just four weeks ago. He's read all the 20 books. He just started so the Jackson series at eight years old. My so middle good. one is charming. I mean, he is like, girls love him. His teachers think he's so charming and He's so good with everybody. He's got this perfect bubble butt. He looks like a football player and he's got this <laughs> muscle. And, he, you know, he just likes you. He's cute. And then the youngest one, she, you know, she has her own way. She's very seductive and very demanding. She's like an attorney. And she gets <laughs> so I love she, it. She's, she gets so excited when you do stuff for her that you want to, like, she's the one you buy her a gift. She's so excited that you just want to keep buying her gifts because she Aww. gets so excited. But the other one, the oldest one's like, oh, okay, thank you. So he doesn't really care. So you have to use whatever you have. It doesn't matter what your gift is. If it's talking, if it's charming, if it's writing, if it's humor, whatever it is you got to use. The tenacity part is not about giving to individuals like, hey, this person's tenacious, that person's not tenacious. Tenacity has nothing to do with talent. Tenacity has to do with you being so stubborn that you're not going to give up until you get what you want. Mm -hmm. And that is a quality that can be learned. And that can, that's a quality that slowly but surely you can make it stronger. So, you know, you may do something and it's not going your way. And in your mind, you say, there's no way in the world she's going to say yes. Push a little bit more. Try another way. Try another way. Try another way until it happens. So in your mind, you're like, I can actually do this. And when you do that five, six, seven, eight different times, your brain believes you can get things. And it's never going to be 100% because I can't say I've closed 100% of my deals. It's not the case. But it's about pushing the envelope a little bit more until you get more yeses than you used to get no's. So it's a muscle everybody can develop. I love that because it, it links into being having a possibilities mindset. And if you think of Thomas Edison, he was when he was interviewed about his thousand attempts, he didn't. And then they said, what, what do you feel about your failures? And he turned around and said, He's a, he knows a thousand things that don't work. So it's that kind of tenacity that we need that builds confidence, doesn't it? So I want to talk about confidence for a moment because that is a, that is a huge thing. How would you define confidence and how much of a role does that play in life as well as as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So confidence is, it comes in multiple different forms. So, mm -hmm. you know, confidence comes, you know, almost everybody is confident in an area. Meaning if I were to talk to my six-year-old kid about a certain video game, how he plays, his level of confidence is so high. But if I asked him about reading a long novel at six years old, his confidence goes down. If I ask my, you know, four-year-old kid to talk to me about different Barbies, which she's fascinated by, her confidence is high. If I give her a book, she doesn't know how to read it, right? So confidence varies based on what things like, Im imagine the sport you hate to play. Odds are whatever sport you don't like to play, you're probably not very good at it. But whatever you're good at, you'll like to do more of, right? So 
you got to make a decision at one point. Like I remember I was getting into business and I didn't know how good I could be. Then I started doing the business and I started making money and I made 3000 a month, 5000 a month, 10000 a month, 20000 a month. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm making good money. What is my limit on this? Like, how big can you scale? So then I sat there and I said, well, you know what? If you can do this and you figured out the math how to do this, what if you continue this pace for five years? What can this thing exponentially grow to? What can it grow to 10 years from now? 15. So then the question becomes your stamina, how long you can last and what the real vision is. So I've met people that make $35,000 a year who are very confident at nightclubs with women, but suck in a job interview. I've met people that make $150,000 a year that are very good in a boardroom, but you take them to a bar and talk to a girl, they, they get so nervous. It makes no sense. So we have different areas in our lives that we're, we're confident and we can't be confident in every area of our lives because that's just not, you, mm -mm, that can't that's be, not normal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's important to realize what you want to be confident in and what to like, I could care less about being confident in certain areas. Yeah. I want, I want to put my time into areas that have the highest rate of return for me. Mm -hmm. Then I want to become so good at it, good at it, where I can sit in a boardroom with anybody else. And I know I can handle that conversation with anybody. And I'm pretty confident I can deliver. So that's one area. Now, the other mm -hmm. area is also about delivering, which means if I negotiate with a $40 billion insurance company, a deal, and I'm sitting down with them and I'm telling them, I want you to give me a 20% raise. And they say a 20% raise, yes. I won't ask it if I'm not confident in knowing I'm going to deliver. So if I ask for a raise, nine out of 10 times mm -hmm. I get my raise. And mm -hmm. the reason why I get my raise is because I don't like to be said no, because I do so much upfront that if I come to you and I say, I just want you to know, Caroline, here's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this, 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 and in return, I need this from you. you you're not going to say no, because you're going to say, Pat, when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So we have to give it to him. You know what? It's yours. What do you want? This is what I want. No problem. It's yours. That's, that to me is you know, the kind of a reputation you want to build in a marketplace where everybody knows when you say you're going to do something, you deliver on it. And the delivery confidence is so priceless because at that point, you build a reputation. When you build a reputation in a marketplace of somebody that delivers, you tend to recruit the best talent. You tend to get people that want to do business with you because the marketplace is filled with so many people that say what they're going to do and don't do it. So you create a noise of confidence. So if you, if you step into your own, if you find what your, where your confidence factor is and then you deliver, you be, the integrity follows the confidence. You create a noise of confidence in the marketplace mm -hmm. as well as in relationships, as well as in every aspect of your life because it translates, doesn't it? It's not just going to stick in one area. It's going to translate. Yeah. So if you think about like confidence, okay. So ladies typically know when a guy is only wanting one thing, it's not hard for them to figure it out. Like mm -hmm. I, if I'm at a certain phase of my life and I only wanted one thing from a, a woman I met, it was very obvious when I would talk to somebody and she had no interest in me because she could read. Listen, yeah, I know what you're it. interested in, right? Okay. But then you also know when you meet a guy and you say, damn, if I date this guy, this is not a guy that's a dating guy. This is a guy that's probably wanting something serious. This is not going to be a guy that I'm just going to sit here and mm -hmm. you know go on a fling or have a good time with them on a weekend at a place. No, this guy's one probably going to be you know taking it to the next level. I don't know if I'm ready for that kind because he's a pretty confident guy. He's probably going to ask mm -hmm. me the tough questions. I don't know if I want that. So when you have a level of confidence and you're clear about what you want, you typically attract the people mm. that are turned on by what you want. And your confidence and clarity filters out people that are unnecessary for you because you're intimidating to them, which is a beautiful place to be if you're clear mm. about what you want and you're confident about your delivery. I am constantly on planes, traveling to conferences and all over the place. And one major problem I used to have was dehydration, which really made me dread flying. Dehydration also made jet lag and headaches so much worse. But ever since using liquid IV electrolytes, flying has become so much more enjoyable. Liquid IV can provide the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water. It contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana, and is healthier than traditional sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors, preservatives like Pedialyte or Gatorade. If you're dehydrated, try Liquid IV. 
it's the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code DRLEAF at checkout. That's 25% of anything you order on Liquid IV's website. Just go to liquidiv.com and enter promo code DRLEAF to save 25% and get better hydration. That's liquidiv.com promo code DRLEAF. Don't wait. Start properly hydrating today. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. I love it. That fits in so much with also understanding and valuing your identity. And so that kind of links into something else that you talk a lot about. And I really like this. You talk about selling is an all pervasive concept that we're all doing it all the time. And that seems to me tied into confidence and tenacity. I know they're slightly different, but there's a, there's a definite link through all three of these. And I found that interesting because it is true. You know, if you think selling, we think business, but actually we also selling our, as we have, as we have confidence, as we push through, as we, that's all kind of selling, isn't it? Can you talk about how you see that? Because I, li- I love how you explain that. Yeah. I mean, my p- parenting is selling. Uh, relationship is selling. Wanting a job interview is selling. Getting the girl to date you instead of go with another guy is selling. The art of selling and persuasion is one of the most important skill sets to learn. You know, my kids, there's a few things I teach them. Like this weekend, I bought them Lego. So if they want to buy Lego, I don't say no. I say yes. So we went to the Lego store. I said, which one do you want? I want this. And I know the more I spend, the more I ask for it. So my middle one wanted a $100 Lego. No problem. I got it. My youngest one wanted a small little Lego that was Elsa. No problem. My oldest son wanted this other Lego. Great. Paid for it. We left. We come home. And I put it all the way up where they cannot reach. It's like 20 feet up. It's above all the you know, media set. And they can look at it, but they cannot touch it. And then we sit there and we negotiate. And I said, that, that's a $100 thing that we just bought. That means for that one, you got to read 10 books, okay? And one book for $10, no problem. You need to read a Percy Jackson and finish that for this. And you need to show that you can go and poop in the toilet for the next four weeks straight. And this is what you're going to get. Great. So now they're all excited about it, right? So I teach my kids a few elements. One is earning. It's very important for them to realize the power of earning. And I teach them negotiation, meaning... They want something from me. Dad, I want ice cream. Well, tell me why. I, I, I think, tell me why you deserve ice cream. Well, remember earlier today, you told me to make 104 shots. I made 120. And earlier today, you told me to swim 25 laps, but I did 35. And I woke up early and I made my bed. I said, you know what? You're right. You deserve ice cream. Let's go. So, but they're negotiating. So from very early on, these kids need to know the power of negotiation. I think too often, we just give it to them. Oh, here you go. Oh, here, no, sell me on it, right? Sell me, sell me on it. And the concept of selling and negotiation, they, these guys, these guys going to have to use it for the rest, of, the rest of their lives because most often, you know, people who get the promotion don't necessarily just get it because they deserve it. A lot of people get passed up on promotions by somebody else that knows how to sell themselves better than another person. So I don't know how many times we've had a great presidential candidate that never won because they're not good at selling their policies. So the best policies don't win. The best salespeople win. Obama, incredible salesperson. Trump, incredible salesperson. Bush used his humor, incredible in sales. More exciting than a gore because he was a better salesperson. You got a McCain that has a resume that was so big, but he couldn't sell himself. Obama could. Romney had a massive resume, couldn't sell himself. Obama could. Trump went against Hillary, massive resume, but she couldn't sell herself. So everything is about learning how to, this isn't about politics, by the way. This is about learning how to sell your message. It is such a powerful message and skill set that in today's times, if you don't move on and start making the topic of sales, like if you're watching this right now and you don't go on Amazon and order the top 10 books on sales with 500 plus reviews, that's how I buy books. I buy them based on number of reviews. If you don't buy all the sales books and make a decision for yourself the next six months to become maniacal about improving your sales, negotiation, persuasive skills, you're missing out on a lot of great experiences you can have just because you know how to sell. So yes, I do believe sales is a mandatory. If you're a bed David, you are going to learn how to sell. If you work at my company, no matter what position you're at, you're going to learn how to sell and negotiate. And anybody that's watching this, if you want the future to be better than what it is today, I highly suggest 
you learn how to sell. Because that brings that confidence and it brings the tenacity too. They all kind of work together, don't they? It kind of is the concepts all work into each other. You actually have a quote that I love. You say, most of the greatest world changers and heroes of all time are at the graveyard, undiscovered because they never sold out to their dreams and desires. Talk about that. That, that is so true because, you know, so good. You, you think about, I read a quote one time years ago where this guy goes to heaven and he's talking to St. Peter. And one of his biggest things was a general who was the greatest general of all time because he was all about the military and he never joined. And he goes to St. Peter and says, St. Peter, I just got one question for you. He says, what's that? Who's the greatest general the U.S. ever had? And he says, what do you mean? He says, who's the greatest general the U.S. ever had? Is it him? He says, no, it's not him. So that a lot of people say it's him. Is it Patton? No, it's not him. Is, is it Grant? No, it's not him. Who's the greatest general? He says, you were supposed to be the greatest general. But when it came down to making a decision to go in and give your best, you were afraid. If you would have gone in, we had everything mapped out for you to be the greatest general of all time. But you balked. You got afraid. See, that is such a scary thought for me because when, when I was studying for my Series 7, I went to Forest Lawn and I was studying at the cemetery because my, my grandmother had just passed away. So I would sit next to her plot and I would study for my Series 7 with my Dearborn manual. And this was October of and. One in November of 2001, when I'm studying uh, for my Series 7. And I loved walking around in the cemetery. And I would walk around and I would say, 1928, 1999. Nope, I don't know that name. 1933 to 2001, I don't know that name. 1917 to 1973, I don't know that name. And I would walk around. I'm like, oh my gosh, I know that name. Wow, I don't know that name. I don't know that name. And I would ask myself, okay, Pat, they comes. It's your turn now. What happens that day? 50 people show up, 100 people show up. They say something like, he was very funny. He had good jokes. Nice guy. I liked him. Very athletic. A few people cry, they leave. A couple family members show up for one year, maybe a couple for a few years. Five, 10 years later, you're gone. I interviewed a guy recently, a very controversial guy, Roger Stone. And he, you know, he, he's, they call him the dirty trickster because he's a, he's a pretty interesting guy when it comes down to politics. He says, you know, there's four stages of fame. I said, what is it? Stage number one is, who is Roger Stone? I mean, I've never heard of this guy. Who is he? He says, stage number two is when you become so good at what you do and people say, get me Roger Stone. Then he says, stage number three is when you become a little bit irrelevant, but people still remember you. They say, hey, get me somebody like, remember that one guy, Roger Stone? Give me somebody like him. And then he says, you know what's last phase? I said, what's that? Who is Roger Stone? Meaning. To stay relevant for a long time is very hard. I know so many people that stay relevant in their family for a month, a year. Maybe they get a nice degree, or maybe they did well with a job for a year. But very few people can stay relevant for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And very few people sit there and realize their potential and want to chase their potential. Too often, people spend way too much time thinking about other people. This is why in the book, Your Next Five Moves, that's coming out August 18th, in this book, Your Next Five Moves, it's about five moves, mastering the art of business strategy. I wrote this book for a specific reason. One morning I woke up, Caroline, this is an interesting story why I wanted to write this book. I woke up one morning, six o'clock, I take my phone, first message, what kind of a son are you? You know, the last time you called me is two months ago. You were the son that you would never leave me alone. Do you still love your mommy? I don't know if you love your mommy. I think you love your business and your job more than you love your mommy. Click. I'm like, okay, that felt great. Then I get a text from my girlfriend and my girlfriend says, I think we have to reconsider our relationship because I don't think this is going anywhere because I think you are more concerned about your dreams than about me. And I want somebody that cares about me as much as they care about their dreams. Mm-hmm. That's my second message I checked. In the day, wow. In a nice day, start. Start. 6.02, 6.02. <laughs> then I get an email. The big account I just closed and my email says, we have decided to cancel. It's a big commission check. Uh, we decided to cancel because we're going with your competitor. Then I get a text from my sales manager that says, I'm leaving you. To oh, the gosh. <laughs> By the way, it's now 6.05. That's my morning. So here's what I thought about in that moment. I said, here's what's interesting. Do you realize I'm not the only person that's having to start to a day like this? That's what I said. You got 10 different people who would respond to the situation in 10 different ways. But what is the right way to respond to this? Do you text your girl back and say, come over? Do you call your mom first and have an hour and a half conversation in the morning? 
Do you call the client first? Do you call your salesperson first? All of those things are sequencing of knowing what are your next five moves, okay? So in this book, I highlight your next five moves, but move number one is the most important one, which has to do with this. Move number one is who do you want to be and what kind of a life do you want to live? You know, I, I, again, I was telling you on the Instagram live that we did, and one of the things I talked about is a guy when he told me he sold the company to EA Sports for $680 million. He was a number six or number seven guy in the company, got a fat multi-seven-figure check. He said to me, Pat, do you realize every time I was a number three or number two or number six guy in the company, I made millions? When I was the founder, none of them made me a penny. None of them. He says, I'm 52 years old. When he told me this, he was 52. I'm 52 years old. He says, it took me 52 years to realize I'm not a good number one. Wow. That's I'm a good phenomenal. Two, three, four, mm. five, six. I remember you that, said that. It was so interesting. He made more money as a number six than a number one. How does that make any sense? But it makes all the sense in the world. This is when, when you know who you are and you find out a life you want to live, you could say, I'm not a founder. I'm not an entrepreneur. I am an entrepreneur. I'm a better executive. I'm a better salesperson. I want to be a consultant. I want to be an, inf- it doesn't matter. So if you solve based on that, then you can say, but I want to reach my capacity. What is my capacity? How big do I want to go? When you combine those together, then you're pursuing your life, your, you know, the, the person you want to be, and you put the pressure of trying to be that person. Not what your mom wants you to be, not dad, not wife, not husband, not exes, none of that stuff. You're solving for this. That brings a certain level of fulfillment and peace and confidence that others cannot bring. So this is why move number one to me is learning who you want to be, not what other people want to be. And that's why I wrote that book, Your Next Five. I'm so glad you did. I was going to pivot over to your book because it's, there's a couple of things that you, or there's so much in it that's, you know, that's so relevant. I just want to undergird what you've just said because one of the things that when I was still practicing clinically for 25 years, the first thing that my patients, when they came in, the first thing that we would work on would be this identity issue. Because if you don't value yourself, you're going to be shaped by the world. If you don't shape yourself, the world will shape you. And it's so good what you said that there are 10 different responses to those that situation. Each mm-hmm. and every one of us has got a different response. We, like we know this instinct Patrick, but yet we still are so influenced by the external world and we think, well, that's the definition of success. I know it's not mine, but that's the definition, so I have to be that. And we make a lousy someone else, we make a great ourself. There's something you can do that no one else can do. And that's what you really, you know, and, and we see that in the brain. My most recent clinical trials, we saw the most fascinating thing where we, through mind management, the techniques have developed, these people's depression, anxiety, whatever, would, be, would drop like 81% because they were managing it. But we would still see a lag in identity. We would still see the labels that the world had put on them. We would still see the front, you could see the front part of the brain kind of lagging behind in terms of not functioning like it should. I mean, someone's identity and value, like if I had, you, you're very confident in who you are. And if we had to do that same QEEG on you, we wouldn't see, I'm pretty certain we wouldn't see a lag in that area or low activation of the different types of frequencies. And that's a person who has been told for so, th- those kind of people have been told for so long, this is who you are, this is your label, and this is what you've got to be to be a success. And in this modern era, the way I see it is that this has really been an issue where we not really be told you're unique, you're wonderful, motivational, blah, blah, blah. But then that's one thing we're hearing, but what we are thinking in our non-conscious mind, this imprinted on us societally, et cetera, et cetera, is this, oh, I've got to be like Steve Jobs to be a success. Yep. I have to yep. be like Patrick to be a success. They yep. make a lousy Patrick. You know, so yeah, I just want to do like undergird what you're saying. So it's so relevant that we find our own value. So I love the fact that you said your next five moves because you're very practical. That's one of the things that you are. You really believe in moving people and shifting them. Now, you have, I've got ten, a couple of points up here that I wanted to ask you about that book. No one has 100% job security, including the founder and the CEO. I like it. Tell me about that. Well, no one does. You know, nobody gets fired more often than the CEO. Nobody does. Every time a client cancels a contract, it's a form of the CEO being fired. Yes. Yeah, Every time mm. an employee quits and goes to another company, it's a form of being fired. Every time the CEO gets sued or the insurance company gets sued, that's a form of getting fired. Every time an investor pulls their money, you just got fired. So there isn't more pressure on the CEO and the founder than no one has more pressure than them. So there's this idea when I would sit down with my staff and I would say, let me ask you guys a question. You think I'm irreplaceable? And they would say, we can't replace you. I said, what makes you think? I said, how many people work over here? Thousands? I said, okay. Say tomorrow I decide to wake up and become an alcoholic and go to Vegas and have 19 mistresses 
and go gamble away my money and I'm partying my ass off and pictures start coming out everywhere and I make irresponsible decisions. I decide to start testing all these different drugs. I do a live video interview while I'm doing the interview. I'm snorting cocaine just to see how the cocaine does since other people are doing pot and they're doing videos. What if I start trying different drugs on national? What, what do you think happens to me? You think I still have my job? They said, no. I said, would you guys fire me? I said, what do you think actually happens? So they start going to, well, I don't know. I said, don't worry about it. Actually, what would you do? I said, and then they started actually thinking about it. I said, what would be your step number one? They said, well, I think we would probably first come together and try to get you some help. I said, okay, so that's step number one. What if I don't want any help? What if I'm like, you cannot help me? Well, then at that point, we have to replace you. Okay, what if I, what if I say, I don't want you to replace me? I'm not willing to step down. He says, well, then at that point, we have to make a decision whether we want to be in a reckless place like this or go to another company. I said, so I can be fired. They said, yes. So that's the idea. Everybody is replaceable. You cannot think because you have this fancy title that nobody can ever fire you. You can also be fired, including myself. So that's not having a complacency kind of attitude. I've made it. I'm here. You have to keep growing and challenging. And, and you're big on that. You're big on people growing, reading books. I remember the first thing I'd write on a prescription pad for all my patients was read, 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 and read some more, you know, and think about what you're reading. So that wow. I, I love the fact that you that you mentioned that because it's, it's complacency just, it stops any kind of growth and we have to have a growth mindset. Okay. So the second thing you say is that what brought you here will not take you to the next level. We have to change and improve continuously. So I set that one up beautifully for you. <laughs> Take it yeah, away. I mean, I mean that's, that's, that's something that you have, you have to really pay very close attention. I hired a new president for one of our companies and I brought him in and I sat him down and day one, he went home at 5, 5.30. I'm like, okay, he went home at 5.30. And a month prior to that, when we were interviewing him, he says, I'm a hardworking guy. I'm this, I'm that. So I text him. I said, where are you? He says, I went home. I said, at 5.30. Yeah. This is your first work thing. You go home at 5.30. Yeah. I said, interesting. I said, let's have a meeting tomorrow. So he comes in. And I said, we're going to conference him. I said, so tell me, what do you envision happening with the company? He says, what do you mean? I said, sell me the vision. Where are we going? You're the, you're the president, sell me the vision. He starts telling me all the vision. He's supposed to present to me today his PowerPoint here shortly. So he starts saying, I think we can do this. I think we can do that. I think we can do this. Okay, great. What else? I think we can do this. I think we can do that. Phenomenal. I said, what's the biggest thing you've ever done in your life? He tells me what he's done. I said, what's the most money you ever made in your life? This is how much. How much money would you like to make here? This is how much. I said, you ever done something like this that you just cast it? No. I said, do you think that you today can do this? He pauses. I said, you have to realize for me and you to be able to do this, we have to improve. Today's PBD is not going to be able to do this. You are not going to be able to do this. If you want to do 530, this is the wrong place for you. So I'm not an 8 to 530 guy. And you had a company that you're going to have a lot of issues with the people that we work here, because if you're the leader and you leave at that time, it's just not going to work. There's other places you can go to the same company for you. So then we went back and forth. We talked about it and it kind of got the idea. The point is, you cannot be arrogant and cocky to think just because you went from zero to 50,000, 50 to 100,000, 100,000 to making a quarter million dollar your income, more than your parents, your siblings. You can't think that you're automatically going to go from a quarter to half a million the way you are today. It just doesn't work that way. You have to improve yourself in certain areas to go to the next level and the next level and the next level. You don't. It's almost like this, you know, this level up that you have to do where it works out like this. I'll show it to you that hopefully this makes sense. In every level that you're in, you have the 80 percenters, you have the 20 percenters, and you have the 1 percent. Okay, so you got 80, you got 20 you got 1%. This is going to make all the sense in the world when I show it to you. Okay. It is so intimidating to do this. So if I'm at the 80 at the bottom. Let's just say I'm at this percent 80. This is level one. If I go into the 20% and if I go into the 1% in this level, I'm the top 1%. This could be a gym. You're playing ping pong or basketball and you're the best player in that gym. But the regional level you go to next used to be 1%. Now you're only in the top 20% of the next level. If you were 20% here, now you're in the 80%. It's going to take a lot of work again to get to the 1% of next level. Then if you go national for ping pong, you're down at the bottom of national. You got So the whole idea is there's always this upgrade. And most people don't want to go like this because it's too much pressure at the next level. Most people would rather stay where they are and stay that little celebrity of their community that little celebrity of their office or the region, because it's so intimidating to compete at that next level. 
So again, if you want to constantly get to the next level, you have to be ready to be at the bottom of the next level. And that is very painful for most people. I love what you've just said. You know, I kind of linked that up to being a research. I always tell people, if you get into research, just be prepared to constantly have to go to that next, the way you've described it now, because it's got so many angles, it, it, the, the road constantly bifurcates. You've constantly, oh, now I've got it, but then you've got to go to the next, now, now I've got it. And it's a constant climb. And that is something that links to a confidence, tenacity, all these kinds of things. So I'm, I, I like how you brought that up. And I, I'm fascinated with the fact that you talk about micromanaging till I trust you. That you that I thought very, very interesting because there's a learning skill there. And, and, I, and I wanted to talk about that because I think a lot of times when it comes to my, mental health, and I've just written a book called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, and this podcast is cleaning up the mental mess. I think a lot of the time our mental mess can come from, we don't want to be, we don't want to learn from others. There's such a lot of, you know, there's, you, you don't want to be controlled by others, So, but you, you, you've got to learn from others. So somehow I think what, what I'd like to understand your micromanage that I trust you because I, and I sense that you are saying, let me teach you until, you know, this is my company working for me or this is my skill. If I have a new re- research assistant that comes on, I'm going to have to micromanage them until they know what they're doing. I'm not going to let them free on the research until yep. they... So I assume that's where you're going with it because have I read you correctly? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, almost every parent micromanages their kids to a level. It's not a, a negative thing. If you didn't micromanage your kids, they these kids may not survive. You know, they, they, a newborn needs to be micromanaged. What do you trust your newborn to do? Change diapers? A newborn, not, they're not going to get up and go to the bathroom. So there's an element sharing to say, I'm going to, you know, give you the opportunity. A lot of times companies hire people, they leave the person alone. That person doesn't know the culture. They don't know this. They don't know that. And all of a sudden, a month later, two months later, like, oh, well, we got to get rid of this person. You didn't do a good job of, you know, in, uh, onboarding them. And that's a form of micromanaging. This is our culture. This is what we stand for. Here's how we do this. This is this meeting. When you come into this meeting, come prepared like this. So that's one part. The other part about micromanaging until you trust is the following. Most people hate holding people accountable just as much as they hate being held accountable. And there is nothing, the higher you want to move up in life, the higher you want to move up in life. You just have to know if you want to be a higher profile profile person, if you want to be somebody with a lot of responsibility, a lot of success, a lot of accolades, a lot of followership, there's a higher level of accountability. LeBron James doesn't respond to Black Lives Matter for one week. Everybody's saying, why has he stayed silent? This is not a responsible thing to do. What? The guy hasn't responded. But that's not a responsible thing to do. Now, LeBron may say, why are you putting this kind of pressure on me? Wait a minute. You wanted it. So you can't say, now I don't want that kind of accountability. You wanted this kind of accountability. This comes with the territory. If you don't want that kind, you know, The Rock made a video and he responded and said, you know, where are you? I don't know if you've seen this video. He got 14 million views on his Instagram account. And people were saying, how come Dwayne Johnson hasn't said anything? How come Ellen DeGeneres hasn't said anything? Well, that is a form of accountability, Ellen DeGeneres and Dwayne Johnson. It sucks. It's annoying, but it's accountability. And fame, fame comes with that. Dave Chappelle just responded his video, eight minutes and 46 seconds. You know the story about how long? Excellent, yeah. Yeah, excellent. 23, 27-minute video. That is a form of accountability. But Dave also said something interesting in it. He says, who the hell is Don Lemon to tell me to respond? You think America wants to hear from celebrities? America doesn't want to hear from Ja Rule. This was his line. And so what, what Dave did there is, which is brilliant, is to say, I don't want to be a role model. I just want to be an entertainer. But even with that, he's managing his expectation with the audience. He's trying to say, I'm not doing this for money. I'm just telling you, this is what I'm thinking about. So that is still a form of accountability for the audience because like, you're in a relationship with somebody. And a guy, girl tells one of my guys, his, he and his wife, you know, they've been together for a while, but the guy's always got a mistress on the side. Okay. And that bothers her. And I said, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. She says, what's that? I said, were you ever the mistress? (laughs) And she laughs. I said, why are you surprised? She didn't even know what to say. She's like, I never thought about that before. I said, so why are you surprised? You went in knowing what it was. So what it would, you can't, you know, this, this, my, my, one of my mentors one time told me, he says, before you get married, he said, you know, men marry women hoping they stay the same and they change. And women marry men hoping they change and they stay the same. So what do you want him to do? You know, this, if this guy was like this with you, he's probably, so 
you can't be upset at his behavior. You accepted it. You can't just think just because he's now, you know, put a finger, your ring on your finger and you guys are engaged for the last two years that now you want him to be loyal to you just because you're in the real estate business. And I said, it's just not how life works. I said, accountability is based on the standards you're willing to tolerate. And you have tolerated that. And that's the expectation you've set. And you, you have to make the next decision of marrying him, knowing you're okay with that. You, you can't marry him thinking, oh, if I say yes, so she's debating whether she should marry him or not. I said, you can't think if he marries you, he's going to stop just because now you're official and you're married, you got a marriage certificate. That's not how life works. I said, it may take a while for that to change and it won't be on your terms. So that is also a form of accountability. So accountability is a very interesting, tricky topic, but it's very necessary the more you want to move up. You probably have heard me say that no diet or exercise routine will work unless you get your mind and mindset right. That's why I love Noom. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based on psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Noom is not a diet. Rather, it is a tool to help you develop the right mindsets around health, fitness, and food. Noom doesn't tell you what to do and what not to do. It teaches you how to look inside your own mind and make better decisions for yourself. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and community of other Noomers, so you'll have all the support you need to empower your change. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I honestly think accountability is a massive part of people not cleaning up their mental mess. In fact, every point that you make in in your book, This Next Five Moves, which is a book that I highly recommend people get, this is, it's, it's, it's excellent, is very much, it's yes, there's business principles, but they're life principles. And that's what you do tend to teach. You have a tremendous skill at taking business principles and applying them to life principles. So it's really, it's really excellent. You've you really hit that one on the nail. Well done. Okay, I want to talk here, creating just one more point from the book, and then I want to pivot to something else. You create positive peer pressure to step up your game. I love that. Now, I want to ask you around that concept is how can we push someone creating the peer pressure that that is going to help them but not destroy them? What is that balance between creating peer pressure and then giving people the little push that they need? And then how can we do it for ourselves? How can we translate that back to pushing ourselves? Maybe don't break ourselves or destroy ourselves and so on. Yeah. You know, when you're doing the wrong thing, you don't want to talk to the right people. You just don't. That's so good. When that you're doing so the good. wrong thing, you just don't want to talk to the right people because you know what they're going to tell you. So why am I going to talk to you? I, mean, I don't want to talk to you. So if marriage is not working out and you kind of aren't, the, you know, like, uh, you know, you really want to leave because you have somebody else on the side you're excited about, you probably want to talk to other friends who have either done what you've done or they're in the process of doing what you're doing. You don't want to talk to somebody that's happily married because they're going to know you like, listen, man, I don't want to hear it. So. But the reality is you need that. You need that perspective. You know, like in America today, unfortunately, in America today, with what's going on right now with the coronavirus, COVID-19, one minute they're telling us to stay home. Next minute they're telling us to protest. Then they're telling us, no, no, stay home. No, 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 go out and protest. No, stay home. So what the hell do you want us to do? Okay. So one minute you say masks work. Then you tell us it doesn't work. Why are you not on the same page? But the biggest challenge we're facing today is we can't get people of opposite aisles to sit in the same room and talk and agree to disagree and have a civil discourse. We can't even get these guys to sit in a room and just have a dialogue. You can't even get Pelosi, Schumer, Trump, and Pence sit in a room and figure this shit out. Like, what is the matter with you? You can't even get a, you know, the former, the, the current commissioner of the NFL after Colin Kaepernick kneels. You don't even want to call the guy to talk to him why he knelt. Why don't you call him? You wait six months and you wonder why the NFL takes a hit? What is the matter with you? And you take six months because you're negotiating your $40 million contract with a lifetime use of NFL's jets? That's a selfish move you're making, Roger Bodell. No wonder we have what's going on in America today. So this whole thing about us through the peer pressure part, there is a very high positive element of peer pressure. There's a very high positive peer pressure. Like, you know, I read this book called Parental Capacity. And this guy talks about the fact that raising kids 
is, you know, coaches, having good coaches around them, having good teachers around them, having good grandparents around them, having good parents of their friends around them. So kids, friends whose parents are strong friends that can have influence over them. Listen, you need help. You need help when you're raising kids. So you need to make sure as a parent, you're putting the right people around your kids because that community can challenge your kids, right? If your kids smoke cigarettes and you quit smoking cigarettes, do you care who gets the credit for making your kids quit, quit smoking? No, you just care the fact that the kid made the right decision. So I think the part of peer pressure has gotten a black eye because it always comes across as negative, but there is a, such a beautiful thing behind positive peer pressure that I don't think enough people tap into. It can create results that are just magical if people put themselves in positive peer pressure type of situation. I love it. We just released my most recent podcast, which we released on Sunday, was about having difficult conversations and being agree, being able to, as you just say, sit at the table and be able to have a discussion without freaking out because you can't, you, know, you get all these reactions in your brain and your body and your mind and everything. And it's actually quite interesting how people receive that and how we just felt it's so necessary in this day and age and this time and the way things are happening is we got to get the art back of having difficult conversations. And I like how you've linked that to the peer pressure. There's a very positive side that we can actually actually sit down, put pressure on each other in a positive way and learn to actually have the empathy that's naturally part of us and, and discuss these difficult things. And, and there's rules for having a decent conversation and being able to accept others' points of view. As you say, why can't they just get around the table and work out what's going on instead of having the selfish motive of I've got to be right and you've got to be wrong. So yeah, that's really, it's, it's crazy. Okay. So one more from the book and then I quickly wanted to ask you about valuetainment, a question around that. We'll pivot to that. We've got to fight, you say, fight any temptation to allow success to lower standards and expectations. I like that because it's really a business skill and it's also a life skill and a relationship skill. Yeah. I mean, you got to realize success can really mess with you. It's one of your biggest enemies because, you know, you've heard Alexander the Great's quote, I have met the enemy. It is I, you know, yes, absolutely. But success is one of your biggest enemies as well, because when you win, you don't listen, you're no longer afraid. And you don't stay paranoid. You don't have, you know, the, the, you don't have the radars on like you used to. You become too cocky and boom, that's when you get caught. So, you know, you, you know, when you start winning, you don't, you sleep in a little bit more. You're a little bit more casual in your negotiations. You come in a little later. You're a little bit more passive. You don't pay attention to the numbers like you once used to. And it can make you be arrogant because a lot of people around you keep telling you how amazing you are. Oh my gosh, you're so great. You're the greatest thing ever. I've never worked with somebody like you. And you almost have to be deaf to compliments when you're at the highest level because you don't need it when you're at the highest level. When you're number one, you need to be deaf to compliments. When you're at the last place, you need compliments. You're, when you're last, you need compliments. When you're number one, you don't need compliments. Like you almost don't. Like I said something the other day on a video in front of my few thousand agents on a Zoom that I was doing. And I told them, I said, you know, I have these guys I work with. They've been with me for six years. I am very comfortable talking about how amazing they are because they've never turned and become cocky after I told them how amazing it is. I said, there are many of you, I will never do that. And I said it on camera. I said, I will never do that because you don't know how to handle compliments. Because the moment somebody compliments you, you try to use that to get something out of me versus just taking a compliment. So you're not going to get it from me. But some people know how to take it. So whether you can or not, when you move up, I tell you, man, words are so deceptive. You know, words have a way of ruining relationships, companies, marriages, friendships, siblings, because somebody told them, well, you know, you're more strong. You're stronger than your dad. I mean, you know, you're better than your brother or your sibling. You know, your, your husband, if I was your husband, I would do this for you. If I was your wife, I would do this. For I can't. She doesn't. Do so you got, you got to know these words. These are very weird words. So. You, you can't, when you get to the top, allow any kind of success to get you to forget about standards and high expectations because that's what got you there. And you cannot forget about it and compromise those things. It's deadly. It's deadly. That's so brilliant. It's, and it's so important. It's what you're saying is, is a lot of self-regulation is required. And that's something that is vital that we as humans need to develop that skill. We're designed to self-regulate, but people don't self-regulate enough, which is a huge part of the work that I do is trying to get, teach people to self-regulate. Because if you, you've just described two groups of people, those that can take a compliment and self-regulate enough to actually get even more, what's the word, tenacious about doing their job even better and learning more and getting more. And then there's the others that will slack off and use it to manipulate. And so it's two totally different responses. 
messes and yep. one creates a mental mess one actually kind of changes your mental health in a very positive direction which is extremely interesting you started valuetainment you said as a sort of almost like a fun thing and then it's ended up becoming an incredibly powerful channel of almost 3 million subscribers and you have interviewed like from the mafia to the you you don't even have a limit you didn't even interviewed me <laughs> so you just have an incredible perspective it's like you there's no bars hold and you have learned i'm sure the most amazing lessons so what is it about valuetainment that has grabbed your mind and the way that you're driving it and what have you learned from these extreme almost extreme people that you have in interview like mafia bosses and that kind of thing and as you said stone the other day and Really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's weird people from Gloria Allred, who is the number one sexual harassment lawyer in the world, to Sammy Double Gravano, to Kobe Bryant, to President Bush, to a lot of Robert Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, just very random people. You know, my biggest thing is, and this is you can't figure this out, but it's what I'm interested in is motive. I want to know motive. I want to know what gets people to move. I want to know what point was it when you decided to become a gangster? And could you have been saved? What was that event? What did your mom or dad do or not do that made you want to go get the love in a different place? Why do you want to sue so many men that a sexual harassment man? Oh, I, I understood. This is what happened to you in Cancun in 1984, which made you want to go after men. Now that makes sense why you're so driven about going after men. Okay, so why, why did you want to go after vaccine, folks? Why, why vaccine? Well, because, oh, this is what took place that got you there. So I'm always curious because, you know, it gets you to realize why people believe, you know, when a Republican looks at Democrats and say, how could you be a Democrat? And a Democrat looks at Republicans and say, how could you be a Republican? And the Republican says, I don't know. I, I don't know how you could be a Democrat. Like, but the motives is what gives you a lot of reasons to realize how people came to the conclusions that they came to. And there, there becomes a level of respect to say, now I understand. You know what? No problem. I totally understand why you think the way you do. So I'm always curious to know what got somebody to start thinking the way they did. And is there any way that it could have gone a complete different direction to have caused life to be better or worse? And if yes, how, what can you share with us in those moments that somebody else that's in that moment makes the better choice, not the work? You know, that's my interest is always there. So I'm always solving for that. I'm not solving for, you know, half the time I could be interviewing somebody that I agree with 100% of what the person says, but I seem like I don't. Because I'm trying to push to get something else that can be revealed that we can all learn from. So, yeah, it's a different style of interview. It's not the, so tell me, you know, what, what about this? Not very, it's pretty challenging, but, you know, ends up being a lot of fun and people like to see them. I like it because you, you go to, you try and find the action, you look at the action or the behavior, whatever they're doing in their life, like the con artist or whatever. And then you go back to the thought behind that. And then you go back to the thinking process behind that. And that's what I find fascinating because that's exactly the kind of research that I do is why people do, do what they do. I actually interviewed a psychopath the other day who is a neuroscientist, who is probably the first recorded neuroscientist who's a psychopath who's actually used his mind to overcome. He's the one who's actually, it was such an interesting story about how he actually landed up finding out he was a psychopath even though his mom and a lot of people suspected listen if you don't channel this guy right you've got a problem and he never went down the toxic toxic sort of side of it but he always was a manipulator and he had that and he even though he's been married to the same woman he's 74 for he's known her since she was 13 he can stand back and he can analyze it, it was fascinating analyze wow. himself and then how he actually could analyze they would call him into all the police department a lot of the police departments to consult a lot of these movies with psychopaths he's often a consultant on those to just what is a typical psychopathic uh, person he's done the mris to look at the not that you can be neuroreductionist you have to look at the whole you have to look at nature nurture plus the eye factor the point here is it, it reminded me of you so much when i was interviewing him because uh, not you being not you being a psychopath that came out wrong patrick that came out wrong no it was just the, the digging behind why people do what they do and why and he at the end of the day the end of the story was he actually could track back through our interview he tracked back okay that was my thought that was my thinking and at the end of it, he said, oh, as I said, you know, you know what you've just done? You've actually just showed me that mind overcomes biology. And he said, at 74 years of age, I have realized mind overcomes biology. So it was fascinating. So it was just just a very, you know, your, your interviews that when I was interviewing him, I was thinking of, you know, you and I learned a lot from you in that interview, actually helped me. OK, so let's talk. Let's just close off by talking about you have gone through a lot of challenges. You described that in the beginning. So I'd love you just to give a sort of closing pearl of wisdom to people that are facing challenges, which we're in a very unique 
great. I think we position like for the first time globally, humanity is facing the same common enemy with COVID virus. We're having to pull together. The politicians, as you've already said, are being are being like kids and the scientists are being much more like adults in the house in terms of, of, of how they're managing the situation. A lot of them have been much more progressive. People are confused, but people have also changed and become more deep thinking. We have a trend in 14 and 15 where people were dying. The, for years, people were living longer. Now suddenly people are dying younger. And so we see that this is coming from lifestyle and we see the modern era is brought with it wonderful things, but also terrible things. And one of them is that people are not thinking deeply enough. And so it's changed how we function as a society. And now we see this in what's happening with the racism and all that kind of stuff. What can you, with your incredible experience and your wisdom and your what you've overcome, what can you take from the lessons that you've learned and apply this to our current situation? How have you overcome this? How, have you, how do you deal with your mental health? I, I would say the first thing to be thinking about is stop spending a single second on things you have no control over. Not a single second on things you have no control over. It doesn't benefit you. It doesn't serve you. There's no benefit for that. You know, conserving your energy is very critical. And unfortunately, a lot of people start off their days by wasting it for things that don't matter the most. You know, it's kind of like when you're eating a certain meal, typically the best part of the food is on top. And then at the bottom, it's like, you know, you got the leftover stuff when you're getting to it. You know, most people start off and they just get all the stuff up top right off the bat and then boom, the rest of the day is going to be a bad day. So I want to consume my energy because I need it when I'm making the most effective decisions of my day and I don't want to waste that time. So for somebody that's watching this, stop spending time with things you have no control over, put everything you have in things you do have control over, move quickly because if you move slowly you're going to pay a price because today it's all about pivoting and making the right audibles. And if you do that, as bad as things are right now, the world has overcome bigger crisis. We've had presidents being assassinated. We have civil rights leaders like MLK being assassinated, which caused mayhem. We've had wars taking place. We've had buildings coming down where lives were. We've had attacks after it. We've had civil wars. And hopefully we don't get to that point. Although right now media seems to be wanting to push us to get into that direction. I had a call that guy called me, he's a celebrity, and he's afraid of really sharing his thoughts. He says, what do you think I should do? I said, how much money do you have in the bank? He says, not a lot. I said, rule number one, go make your money so you can be bullied. Go make your millions. Because if you don't make millions nowadays, you're going to be bullied by what the media tells you or whatever you're working at, or whatever your family tells you, there's never been a more important time to make money than today. So rather than worried about what Fox News or MSNBC or CNN is saying, worry about what your bank account is saying. Go fix that problem two, three, five years from now. If you want to be a political activist, do it with $5 million in a bank. Don't do it with $6,000 in a bank. It's not a smart move. Your husband, your wife, your kids are relying on you to make the right decisions to get money in your pocket. Because at the end of the day, Trump, Obama, they ain't going to pay your bills. None of those guys are going to pay your bills. You got to make that decision for yourself and help people make the right choices because your dreams and your family's relying on it more than ever before. That's excellent. That's amazing. Okay, Patrick, how can people get hold of you and get hold of your book, The Next Five Moves? You know, if they want to get the book, they can go to yournextfivemoves.com, spelled out. If you go to yournextfivemoves, spelled out, uh, you buy the book, we'll send you a chapter of the book to read and that'll be on the website but you can find me on youtube if you just type in value Timmy or instagram patrick with david perfect and we'll put that in the show notes patrick it's been as usual wonderful having a discussion with you i love talking to you and it's always so informative and and just so insightful so thank you very much for your time and your wisdom it's been amazing and i look forward to doing it again I look forward to it. I always have to, uh, fun with you when we're talking. It's always good conversations. It is. We back and forth with all these deep things, which are so good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com. And to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. 
So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.